It's Rainforest Mind with me, Casper Thompson. It's nine o'clock in the morning on Tuesday, the 7th of May, and it has been weeks since my last podcast episode. What's happened? Well, those of you who read articles on my website or follow me on social media will know what's happened about a month ago we got a new puppy wow that has been an all-consuming lifestyle change and one of the things that slid onto the back burner has been recording new episodes of rainforest mind but here i am today and i thought i would talk a little bit about what i've learned from having a puppy such a gave a talk on the same theme here at the temple at the weekend which I'm going to upload to YouTube very shortly. But in the meantime, I wanted to share some of the lessons that I had learned. Maybe first, though, I'll just describe how she came into our lives. So I guess three months ago, something like that, Satch and I were chatting, there was a dog on the television and Satya said to me oh, do you think we'll ever get a dog and I said oh yes one day so I kind of had this thought in the back of my mind for a while and slowly it becoming closer to the front of my mind and I'd sort of gone oh well, we've got three rabbits and three cats one of our cats is very old maybe when he dies that would be the time to get a dog, another animal. (coughs) But once we had that conversation, such as excitement started to kick in, once that thought had sort of percolated through her mind, and very quickly we found ourselves uh, examining different ways of getting hold of dogs and through one of those web searches came across a picture of some puppies for sale and really I suspect just fell in love with that photograph and suddenly most of the rational thinking went out the window at that point not all of it we did research about um, what kind of puppies they were it's a breed called a Shishon, which is a cross between a Shih Tzu and a Bison, Bishon Freeze. Uh, they're often called Zushons in the States. And they're known to be good with children and other animals, which was, you know, we have a lot of visitors here. At the temple, we wanted some a dog that would be sociable. There's no guarantees, of course, but they've got a reputation for being pretty sociable and they're sometimes used as therapy dogs. So that was reassuring. Anyway, we went to visit. And of course, as soon as we saw the actual puppy, there was no turning back. Some people have commented... <laughs> that she's got the same colouring as us. At the moment, she's kind of got the same colour hair as such and myself. Although there is this thing in the breed where they tend to lose their colouring. A, a Bichon is like a little 
lamb. It's a dog, but it looks like a lamb. It's very white. And the colouring of the, the Shih Tzu is often present in puppies, but somehow grows out. So I'm slightly disappointed to find that out. But at the moment, we are... Uh, become part of the proof that dogs look like their owners. We did a lot of reading, we both did a lot of reading on how to train dogs and what the world, got a couple of books on what the world is like from a dog's point of view, which was really interesting. Because I was, in, I didn't, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in having a dog just for it to serve my needs he has to fit into our lifestyle, you know, to some degree. But also, for me, it's important to treat her as an actual being with her own preferences and points of view and so on, and um, what makes the best life for her. So I thought we were somewhat prepared. And I, we had a sense that there would be sleepless nights to start with and what the, the, the schedule might be and that our work... Non-essential work would have to take a back seat. But the extent of the tiredness in, in the experience was something quite different to the anticipation of it. And the moments of overwhelm were much more fraught and unfortunately frequent than I'd imagined interspersed with moments of delight and joy, of course. And I think partly what happened for me was wanting to do such a good job for Iko, that's the puppy's name, that I became hypervigilant when she was awake. And for me, one of the ways that I sort of self-regulate is through creating distance between myself and the world, that sort of classic introvert strategy of having time on my own or reading a novel. And suddenly I was plunged into contact, more contact with the world than I was used to, than I was expecting. I was sort of always awake, always present. And there's something tiring about that. And actually... Looking back on those first few weeks, I suspect a little bit over-awake and over-watching to the extent that I was becoming slightly anxious. Uh, I got this slight background anxiety all the time about was she going to get into trouble? Was was she going to have an accident? Were the cats going to get upset with her? Was she going to get upset with the cats? Um... How is that dynamic going to play out? It's gone quiet. Why has it gone quiet? All those things. Oh, she's found the cat biscuits that I forgot to take up, so now she's going to have a bad stomach later on. And now she's biting because she's overtired, and I didn't know that I needed to put her bed earlier. And just this sort of constant train running in the background. I'm sure that would have been much worse without all my years of Buddhist practice. Um, and yet, it was still there. Anyway, a lot of that was solved by learning some practical things about how to have a dog, which is like children, that um, 
certainly when she was very little, she didn't know how to put herself to bed. And if we left her, would just stay up and get crazier and crazier and, and sort of more and more wound up. Like you imagine asking a child, oh, do you want to stay up or do you want to go to bed? Well, mostly they want to stay up regardless of how tired they are. So learning that, which we learnt very early on, actually, was a helpful lesson. Realising that her biting and mouthing sometimes was when she was just overexcited from playing, but sometimes was, a, was her saying a very clear signal, um, actually, I don't want to carry on this game anymore, or I don't want to be picked up right now, or I don't want to be tickled. And going, oh, okay... Yes, I get that you're communicating that. I'm going to respect that boundary. That reduced a lot of the um, the mouthing and biting. Learning to stand still like a statue also really helped when she was trying to tug my socks or nibble my toes. Because, of course, as soon as you move your foot, it becomes a game. Or if you flinch, in fact, any sort of attention is experienced as a reward um, and encourages the behaviour. So this, um, I'll put a link to the book, but the one book we read, Three Simple Rules, Ignore What You Don't Like, Praise What You Do, Manage What You Can't Ignore, I Don't Leave You Expensive Shoes on the Floor. Really good advice, and we've really tried to do that as much as possible. And it does seem to have helped. So there's, And I think that's probably good advice for arguments with people as well conversations with people of course it's important we we have more sophisticated ways of communicating standing still like statues but in buddhist training the more i work with trainees and mentees the more it becomes clear to me that while people will take some instruction most of the time they are going to do what they're going to do. I think if you're in a very tight structure, a very authoritarian organisation, like a Zen temple or the military, then you you kind of... Those tight structures and the culture can sort of programme people to follow instructions. Whether they follow them wholeheartedly, I think, is a, is a different question. But I don't work in that sort of structure. So people take the instructions in their own way or take the teaching in their own way and do what they will with it getting upset when they do something unexpected or that I don't like rarely leads to a good outcome but praising what I do enjoy and the the highlights and the things that I really appreciate about people encourages them to flower even more than they're flowering already so dogs people pretty good advice i think ignore what you don't like praise what you do like and manage what you can't ignore which you know might mean leaving the room rather than staying in an argument or whatever there's different different ways of managing what you can't ignore one of the biggest lessons that was the limit of my self-power this is uh, it's a term that's used in Puran Buddhism and I, I suppose it means something like the, the ability to 
change for the better, to make progress. Even those words are, are, are a bit slippery. Not slippery, what am I trying to say? Even those words imply a particular worldview that change and progress is always possible or good. And there's something particularly Western about that, perhaps since the um, Enlightenment in the European sense of the word, this idea that we can always move forward, we can always do better. And there is something useful about that. A lot of positive results have happened because people have believed that they can put energy in and get better results uh, out at the other end. And ultimately, it is always an idea that is defeated. There is always a limit to progress. Often that is a personal limit, and sometimes it's a practical limit. Self-power is the idea that we can, in pure Buddhism, is the idea that we can enlighten ourselves in the Buddhist sense, that we can experience spiritual liberation through something that we do uh, ourselves, through, through energy that we put in ourselves, through our own effort. And again, we can make spiritual progress based on this idea, but at some point... It fails because we meditate for hours and hours and hours and then still fall into negative states of mind, for example. Or we try really hard to follow the precepts and then find ourselves breaking them. Often what we realise in those, what I've realised in those moments of defeat is there's something else going on. There's something else in the world other than my own energies. This is a sort of real existential question. I'm suddenly conscious that I could explain this in very traditional Buddhist language or even very traditional religious language, but that might not work for the people listening to this podcast. Okay, so the the opposite of self-power is other power, which is the idea that we are supported, guided, and enlightened, led to spiritual awakening or psychological awakening, always from the outside. It might be as simple as experiencing beauty in the world and suddenly going, oh, I can put down my troubles for a moment, look at the sun setting on the horizon. It might be from feedback that we get from another person. It might be from coming into contact with the natural world and experiencing something about the big picture. Our life carries on. I get that when I go into the garden and see all the insects buzzing around sometimes and the, the flowers flowering and most 99% of what happens in the garden happens without me occasionally I put a new plant in or you know once a year top up the beds with compost but most of that process of things growing and flourishing and pollinating and happens without me and for me there's something very comforting and restful about being in relationship to a much bigger cycle than my own whims. And I suppose we can also think, reflect on other power very personally, or what is it 
the, the good things that I have now, the good states of mind, the good actions that I feed back into the world, materially the, the things that support me, where have they come from? Materially it's easier to realise that they come from the outside. The house I'm in is 200 years old, so it's built by somebody that wasn't me. The materials came from the earth. Stonemasons uh, created stones and different people set them into the earth. You know, all these human processes and non-human processes that went into creating the building I'm in. And of course, if you really want to, you can trace it back much further. Where did those elements come from? Well, before the earth, they were um, rocks and dust in space that coalesced into planets around the sun and so on and so forth, right back into those primordial uh, birthplace of the universe. In those first few moments of the Big Bang. And traditionally, the Buddhist point of view about the world is that it's just always, there's always some of the conditions which fits with the idea of what do they call it? The, um, I can't remember what the, the sort of shorthand term, but the idea that there's a big, you know, there's a Big Bang, then there's a universe, and then the universe contracts again then there's an, another big bang although I think some scientists are now suggesting that this universe may not contract it may just um, steadily get further and further the things in it might get further and further apart and the energy might get quieter and quieter and quieter until it comes to a still state but it's hard to tell from this point of view anyway you can look at all those causes and conditions that allow to be, me to be here talking into this microphone in this building and hardly any of it is to do with anything, any choices that I've made. And even when I examine those choices and what enabled me to make them, they've always been supported by things outside myself. So this is the idea, this gives you a flavour of the idea of other power and I started talking about all of this because it was something that I encountered with the puppy that actually for all the reading I did and all the efforting I uh, put in there were still moments when I was overwhelmed because life with the puppy triggered something in me and you could say if I'd processed that stuff in therapy it wouldn't have triggered it and there is some truth to that but invariably, there's always something. There's always going to be something that affects us in a negative way. That's how it is to be human. We, I do believe that we can do work on that to, um, to heal the sore spots so that we are less triggered. And I also believe that one of the points of therapy and spiritual practice is to allow us to be more graceful when we are triggered and for me plugging plugging into that sense of other power which really is perhaps a different way of saying the big picture taking refuge in the big picture having for me some sense of solace that comes from the big picture and I guess as a religious person it isn't just a sense of the material world that I'm including there is something 
beyond that. In the episode about Christianity and Buddha that I did right at the beginning of this podcast series, I quoted Paul Nitter, I think, who said, God isn't a person but has a personality. And there is something that I experience in the universe that is non-material and has a personality and affects me, my states of mind. And I I don't like, locate that in my own psychology, although as, as many modern people would, it feels like it's bigger than that. So there's something important there for me as well about recognising that regardless of what state of mind I am, regardless of how fraught I am, I can still have an experience of being received by something. Received by the natural world, received by the bigger picture, but also received by this sense of the divine or the Buddha that isn't a person but has a personality which is loving and kind. And those moments of being fraught and overwrought were all opportunities where I could go, oh, you know what, I can't do this on my own. And despite that, there is something, there is an experience I have of being received in this moment where I'm really in touch with my flawed nature as a human being. And my experience of being received in that way allows me to experience my limitations without being afraid of them, without being afraid of myself, without being afraid of being overwhelmed. And there, in that, there is the possibility of healing. So there is something slightly paradoxical. You know, there is a sense that progress can happen when we give up on the idea of progress. Because it comes through a deep experience of acceptance of who we are that for me is supported by my experience of something that isn't who I am. Hopefully, I've just been speaking off the top of my head. I don't have any notes for this episode. Hopefully, the structure is fairly coherent. I've got up and I've started moving around the room with the microphone, so if there's any weird noises, that's why. And it, that came out of a sudden fear that, oh, maybe I've uh, <laughs> maybe I've gone down too many rabbit holes in this episode. But anyway, I wanted to talk about having a new puppy. I wanted to say how wonderful it's been. I probably underemphasize that. She is a real joy. Uh, we play chase in the garden. We play fetch. My favorite, some of my favorite moments are when she runs towards me in the garden, her ears flapping and her fur um, blowing in the wind. Other wonderful moments are introducing her to people in the street because people just fall in love with her. She's particularly cute. And they receive so much from uh, just having a few moments or a couple of minutes interacting with this non-human life form. There was one woman in the park, an older woman sitting next to an older guy, and we walked past and we just sort of noticed that she was 
that she noticed that we were carrying a puppy. This was before Iko had had a jab, so she wasn't allowed on the floor. And we took her over to introduce her, and she was so delighted and moved to be um, warmly greeted by this puppy, by this non-human animal. There's a lot of love in the puppy for people, and that's a real delight to see. But I also wanted to talk about the difficulties and how those difficulties had led me to a deeper acceptance of who I am. And how for me that deeper acceptance of who I am, which paradoxically often leads to a letting go, is supported by something that isn't myself. So I've rambled a bit, but those are the three key points. Anyway, if you've stayed with me this long, thanks for staying with me. And uh, I hope that you will join me next time for another edition of Rainforest Mind. If you are interested in reading more about my experiences with ICO, check out a couple of my recent articles on my website at Casper Thompson. .co.uk, that's K-A-S-P-A-T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N, where you'll also find details about my practice as a psychotherapist and links to the Buddhist temple that I run with my wife, Satya. Thanks for listening, uh, and have a great day, whatever you're doing. I always struggle with this <laughs> hellos and goodbyes. My, um, my social clumsiness kicks in. Anyway, um, That's all for today. Take care.